Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And with me this week, celebrating a famous victory in the test match, is my regular co-host, Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. So, as I say, Simon, we had a uh, famous victory in the cricket against the top-ranked test side in the world. Uh, somewhat of a surprise, you were there. Uh, has it been quite such a good story in the in the markets this week? Sadly not. Sadly not. After the euphoria of Sunday, it's probably been a little bit of an up-and-down week, to be honest, for the markets. Certainly the first four trading days of the week saw investment companies flat, a few up days and a few down days. And that actually represented an outperformance of the wider UK market in the form of the FTSE All Share, down 0.7% the first four days. Now, in terms of the sector average discount, well, that narrowed in a little bit. I think we started about 7.3%. And suddenly at the close of Thursday, it stood at 7.1%. And that compares with an average of 5.5% for the year to date. But as we record this, the markets are off again, probably down about 1.5%. We're awaiting inflation data from the US, a lot of speculation how the Federal Reserve might react to that. And we also learned this week that the European Central Bank plans to hike rates by 25 basis points at their next meeting and a possible 50 basis points being discussed for September. So inflation very much to the forefront of people's minds. There's also reports of more areas of Shanghai to be shut down as part of the the Chinese zero COVID policy. And that's something that's spooked Asian markets for understandable reasons. And in fact, we did see the World Bank warn this week of a 1970s stagflation trap. And certainly with the UK facing the biggest rail strike in a generation, it does have a bit of a 1970s feel to it. Indeed, it does. Uh, you're absolutely right. And of course, this week we've seen bond yields edge back up. The uh, Certainly in the US, uh, the main benchmark bond yields are edging back up to around 3%. There has been this great debate in amongst investors about whether the policy of raising interest rates is going to have uh, in effect quicker than many people originally thought. In other words, uh, if the economy slows down so much that the uh, Federal Reserve and other central banks may decide to reverse course after all, having said they want to get on top of inflation. That's been a kind of debate going on amongst professional investors. But uh, uh, certainly the way the markets have moved this year, you know, there's no kind of evidence of that so far. The central banks are sticking to their guns, making uh, these uh, policy changes and being fairly hard line on inflation. In that context, if I just have a quick look at the movers and fallers in the investment trust sector this week, I mean, one standout, you mentioned uh, China, one standout has been the... uh, performance of the Chinese investment trust. We highlighted the bullishness of uh, some of the uh, managers of Chinese investment trusts uh, last week and indeed the week before. It seems to be borne out, at least in the short term. What do you think is lying behind that, Simon? No, it's a good point. And just to put some numbers around that, certainly over the last month, there have been some uh, quite spectacular rebounds for some of these China plays. So the JP Morgan China Growth and Income Fund, just over that last month in share price terms, up 27%. Bailey Giver China Growth Trust up 24%, uh, and Fidelity not too far behind, up 18%. Now, if you kind of look behind those numbers, uh, NAV growth is part of the story. And obviously, this is a very, very short term timeframe that we're talking about. Uh, but those NAVs, I mean, the JPM funds up about 18%, Bailey Gifford and Fidelity up 13% and 11% respectively. And the Aberdeen China Fund not too far behind, actually up 10%. But what it's meant is that the discounts that we'd seen on those funds have actually disappeared. So in other words, they've been re-rated. So the JP Morgan Fund on a 1% premium, as is the Bailey Gifford Fund, um, Fidelity China, its discount has moved in probably to about 3% or so. So I think, you know, is it a relief rally for the Chinese equity market? That's part of the story. But I think also investors having a look at this one again. But to give it some context, the numbers over the last 12 months are still very much in negative territory. So again, looking at the share price numbers for those funds, I mean, the JP Morgan fund is still down 36%. And that's despite that rebound over the last month. Um, Fidelity China down 18%, Bailey Gifford down 20%, and the Aberdeen fund down 18%. So a little bit of a roller coaster, but perhaps people are trying to time a rebound in Chinese equities here. 
Then he says there's a plausible reason why that might be to do with the COVID policy, which might be relevant to that. Because I'm looking at the other sort of some of the, the big down uh, movers this week, and uh, they're mostly those growth investment trusts. I'm looking at um, the Bailey Gifford Trust, Bailey Gifford European, and the, the Technology Trust, Alliance, and uh, Polar Capital, and Bailey Gifford US Growth, those sort of things. So it's not a growth story in, in that sense. And they've had a bit of a rally, those growth style trusts, uh, but they're selling off again. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Look, we're going to come on and talk about a number of results and a number of growth investors. It's a really, really tough time. And I think as will become apparent when we kind of run through those results, I think there's there's quite a lot of consideration for those growth investors, perhaps some would say even navel gazing about whether to kind of stick the course, but it's certainly still proving a very difficult market for them. Okay, so we're going to move on to corporate activity. And we've got uh, three items to talk about here. First up is uh, EP Global Opportunities, ticker EPG. At least uh, it was EPG before this week's news. So what's been going on here? This is uh, a trust that's been managed for about 20 years uh, by Sandy Nairn, in whom I must declare an interest. He's a co-author of mine on, on a couple of books. But uh, they've made a rather interesting move to become a self-managed investment trust, which I think we've talked about their intentions there. So what's the news about that this week? Yeah, so the news this week is that the FCA, the regulator, basically had given them permission to become a self-managed investment trust. So as you rightly observed, we were told about this a number of months ago, but obviously you have to wait for all these things to be approved. That's happened. So what that means in practice that Franklin Templeton Investment Trust Management, who were the previous managers, that agreement has been terminated, though Franklin Templeton Investment uh, are still responsible as investment manager for about 80% or so of the fund's assets. But this idea now that Sandy Nan, who's on the board of this particular investment trust, and it's, it has actually been renamed, it is now the Global Opportunities Trust, PLC, and Sandy's very much involved in managing and overseeing that portfolio. But I think probably the point with this one is that he has a very bearish outlook on markets in general. And unsurprisingly, the portfolio is positioned to reflect that. So if you actually look at its performance year to date, and obviously it's been a tough market for global equity investors in general, this isn't just equities, it's fair to say, but certainly in NAV terms, EP Global Opportunities or Global Opportunities Trust, as I should now refer to it, um, has been one of the better performers, in fact, one of the few that is actually in positive NAV territory year to date. Obviously, I can say that uh, Sandy Nan is indeed in the camp that says we are due a more significant bear market than we've seen so far. And he recently published a book to that effect uh, called The End of the Everything Bubble, which has a lot of interesting material in it uh, about what happened. So it's pretty unusual for trust to become self-managed trust. We might, uh, at this point, just quickly mention rights and issues, a very interesting investment trust that's largely operates sort of off the grid, so to speak. It's not very widely known. But there's been some news about this as well this week. Uh, this is Rights and Issues, ticker R-I-I-I. Tell us about that one first, and then we can come back to this issue of, uh, of self-managed trusts. So the announcement this week was that the investment manager for 39 years, since basically 1983, a gentleman called Simon Knott, will retire with effect from the 1st of September. And the Board of Rights and Issues have announced that Jupiter Fund Manager has been appointed to succeed him. The lead manager will be a chap called Dan Nichols. He'll be supported by Matt Cable. And they're both part of the UK Smaller Mid-Cap Equity Team at Jupiter. So the idea is that a significant proportion of the existing holdings will be retained and it will be run on a low turnover policy. So for those people not familiar with how Simon Knott has run this portfolio for a long time, it's quite a concentrated UK mid and small cap portfolio. I think there are only about 30 holdings or so. It might be a few more now, but certainly historically it's been quite concentrated and very much a kind of buy and hold type approach. As you mentioned, it has historically been a self-managed investment trust and it's had quite a low ongoing charge figure. And in fact, what they said, and this was an unusual aspect of this particular deal, is that the fee to Jupiter will be at a level to ensure that the ongoing charges figure does not exceed 0.8%. So rather than say they'll charge 50, 60 basis points, whatever it might be, they're going to look at all the costs in the round and ensure it doesn't exceed that number. But it's important to note there will be no change to the investment objective or policy. And it's a decent sized fund, this actually. It's got net assets of around about £190 million or so. And its long-term performance record 
under Simon Knott has been very strong. In fact, he and his family have got quite a significant shareholding in the in the VIP. I'm going to say about 16% or so. Yeah, that's right. I actually uh, looked up the details because, um, you know, after Peter Spiller at uh, Capital Gearing, I think Simon Knott is the longest continuously serving fund manager in the sector, uh, but he's always kept a pretty low profile. I mean, I've never met him. I don't think I've ever even seen a, a photograph of him, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. But uh, he, I'll send you one now. <laughs> he does have a pretty low profile. I mean, you must have talked to him, obviously. And he's got a, a pretty good record going all the way back to uh, 1983 when he started. And, you know, if you put some money in then, you would have done very handsomely. It is a small cap, a UK small cap trust, which has comfortably beaten the ore share over that period. Um, but of course, the uh, as you say, it also has a low charge. I mean, I think it was down to thirty basis points, so zero point three percent as a its OCF ongoing charge before this particular deal. But I guess everybody's entitled to retire at some point. What about the fact that Jupiter have been given the mandate? I mean, that's a little bit of a surprise in one sense, in that they've been losing their investment trusts. Uh, they've lost two or three over the last, um, you know, two or three years. And Dan Nichols, who is I think a very highly regarded UK small cap manager came from Merion and uh, previously was working, uh, was it at Schroeder's he used to work? Anyway, he had a very good, strong long-term record in the UK small cap space. So um, were you surprised to see this announcement that they given the mandate to Jupiter? Well, I think it's great news for Jupiter, clearly, as, as you correctly observed, they have lost a number uh, of mandates in, in recent years for various reasons. And at the moment, obviously, they've got Chrysalis Investments that we talked about quite a bit in the stable. But in terms of kind of ongoing investment trust with their own brand, Jupiter, Green would probably be the other obvious one. So, look, it's good news for them. And I think as a house, Jupiter see investment trusts as a kind of natural fit for them. They have historically had a high retail following, and I think they see investment trusts as an important part of that mix. So um, I think they'll chalk this one down as a good win. Indeed. And they're doing a tender offer, you said, at a discount, 4% discount. How would you think this one go? Because it's a fairly concentrated share register, as you said. Uh, I guess we don't know whether Simon Knott is going to give up his shareholding or not, and his family going to give up his shareholding or not. Uh, do you know that? Well, I think they've said, and this is my recollection, that the directors would not look to tender their shares. I think I'm correct in saying that. And obviously, he is a director, so we can assume that he will be happy to continue his holding. But they're trading on about a 12% discount also at the moment. Uh, you know, and I'm saying that long-term track record is good and it's strong, but in more recent years, it's obviously been a little bit more of a tricky market for UK mid and small cap. And again, as you observe, this is a you know low profile investment trust, you know, subterranean really, its profile. And one suspects again that Jupiter will wish to address that and put uh, their efforts into marketing this one. So it would be interesting to see how this plays out. I mean, at the moment, the UK mid and small cap, that particular peer group is trading on an average discount of about 12%. So it's kind of broadly in line with that. I looked up the uh, annual report and some of the history of this one because I was a little bit uh, out of date with it. I mean, and the board has been making some changes over the last uh, five years. They introduced a discount control policy, I think, back in 2016, which was aiming to keep the discount around 10%. And then uh, last year, they had a review of the strategy and uh, said they would continue to, at least to the next continuation vote in 2026 and also said that they were reducing the risk a little bit and reducing the concentration of the portfolio. So no doubt this is all with an eye on the fact that uh, Simon Knott might be retiring in due course and it might be necessary, therefore, to move it out into, if you like, the wider ocean. Would, would that make sense to you? Would that appear to be what they're doing? Yeah, I think that's right. And, and look, I suspect there are a number of people on the register who've been there for a long time and they've been there probably attracted by his long-term track record. So the fact that he's retiring means that you know, Jupiter have probably got a job of work here to explain why people should you know, stick with them or conversely look to invest in uh, on the current discount. Indeed. And then just going back to EP Global Opportunities, I mean, that's also trading on a big discount. And we said, I remember saying when this was first announced last year, that uh, there was an issue whether the existing shareholders would be you know, happy to go on. They did a tender offer and some shareholders left. But um, I guess the performance since then has sort of indicated the very bearish stance of saint Inan for the time being. How do you think that one's going to trade in future? I mean, there's still an overhang, I imagine, of people who might want to leave, but might change their mind after seeing how well it's performed in relative terms. Yeah, I mean, look, you make a good point. The average discount on Global Opportunities Trust over the last 12 months is about 10%. It's currently trading on a 15% discount. It has been derated this year. So what I mentioned earlier, that uh, its NAV performance was strong, and certainly over the last 
12 months, it's up 10% in NAV terms. It's actually up only 2% in share price terms. And that's a reflection of the fact it has been derated. So again, there's an issue. There's probably a job of work to be done on this one. And I think the issue here is compounded by the fact that it's now got a market cap of about £84 million. So for a lot of investors, that means it's probably off their radar. Yes, indeed. So there's some effort there and marketing needed there. Uh, also worth mentioning, I think, that Sandy Nairn has a significant stake in it, rather like Simon Notters. Uh, so at least you'll know that he'll be doing something that he's doing with his own money, uh, as well as not just uh, looking for relative performance. OK, so those are two interesting self-managed trusts, or have been self-managed. One's become a self-managed trust. The other one has been a self-managed trust, but now perhaps uh, going to change its ways in that respect. Let's move on and talk about LXI REIT. Bit of uh, housekeeping on this one, I think. Uh, catch up with their proposed merger. Perhaps you can remind us what that's about. Just ticker LXI. Yeah, that's right. So we knew about the, the merger a few weeks ago, and this is between LXI REIT and Secure Income REIT. What we learned this week is the date, the time scale. So basically, there will be some general meetings uh, on or around the 22nd of June. Basically, the scheme of merger is or combination is expected to become effective on or around the 6th of July. So the last day of dealings in the shares of Secure Income REIT, which is a name traded company, is expected to be just prior to that effective date, i.e. the 5th of July. So it's all going to happen, assuming shareholder approval is forthcoming, in quite short order. And so just remind us about how the you know the two trusts have been trading. Obviously, LXI REIT's been trading on a premium for, uh, well, most of its life, I think. Um, obviously had a very uh, successful history. And secure income REIT, what's been happening to that one? I mean, there was uh, it was on a discount before, I think, was it not? Yeah, that's right. So just to cover it off, when the news was initially announced, LXI REIT, the share price kind of came off a little bit. I think people took a little bit of time to digest and, and consider what it actually meant. Since then, it's recovered. And so I put it on about a 4% premium or so at the moment. That's a little bit lower than its average premium over the last 12 months. That probably equates to about... 9% or so, but it still maintained its premium rating. In terms of secure income REIT, well, that saw its share price rise on, on the back of this announcement. So if those two things are anything to go by, it would suggest that, broadly speaking, shareholders might be minded to approve this deal. Indeed, um, which will create, a, obviously, a, a significantly larger vehicle as well. So that's one to look out for, see how the ratings continue on those two. Uh, once this goes through. Okay, let's talk about fundraising. Not understanding these uh, tricky markets, there has been some fundraising news, but it won't be a total surprise to hear that it's in the renewable energy and infrastructure space yet again, the place to be at the moment. Let's kick off first with the Downing Renewables and Infrastructure Trust. This is ticker D-O-R-E. Let's uh, hear what they've got in mind on the fundraising side and uh, how far how it's actually gone. So this week, the Board of Downing Renewables and Infrastructure Trust announced they were looking to raise up to £50 million. That will be at an issue price of 111p. Um, they're also looking to put in place a £250 million share issuance programme. But that issue price of 111p, that represents about a 2% premium to their NAV at the end of March and a small discount, probably about a 1% discount or so to the closing price just ahead of when they announced this fundraising plans. What are they going to do with the money? Well, if they're successful, they will look, as many of these funds do, look to repay their credit facility. That currently stands about £17 million or so. But it's worth reminding people that this is a relatively new infrastructure fund. It only came to the market at the back end of 2020 when it raised £123 million for its IPO. And they came back to the market again in October last year and at that stage, they raised an additional £15 million. OK, and so let's talk about another one, which is VH Global Sustainable Energy Opportunities, ticker GSEO. What are they uh, proposing to do here? Yep, again, they're looking to raise some additional capital. They're targeting about £150 million or so, and that's replacing open offer for subscription and intermediaries offer. And in fact, that £150 million target, they could increase that up to £280 million if uh, investor demand were to be strong enough. The issue price will be 110 p and that represents a 3% premium to the NAV at the end of March 
and about a three or four percent discount to the um, share price at the previous close. But the investment advisor of this one, an outfit called Victory Hill Capital, has identified a pipeline of three projects, which in aggregate are valued at about two hundred eighty million pounds. There's some interesting ones here. They've uh, got a portfolio of three operating wind farms in Mexico, which is valued at about seventy-one million pounds. They've got a hydro plant in Brazil. That's valued at £129 million. And they've also got a UK combined heat and power project. Now, if this is all successful, they believe that they can get that money to work within about a three to six month period. So shareholder approval will be sought at a general meeting on the 28th of June. And actually, the placing closes that day with the new shares beginning to trade from the 1st of July. So one of the attractions, obviously, these renewable energy trusts is the dividend yields. Uh, How are these two trading? And... uh, How does that compare with the sector overall? Yeah, again, it's relatively early days for these funds, actually. So VH, Global Sustainable Energy Opportunities Trust. I mean, on a historic basis, I've got a yield of about 1.1%, but it's worth bearing in mind that they only came to the market in February 2021. So they'll be still looking to deploy their capital and build up their dividend record. Uh, And equally, Downing Renewables and Infrastructure, they've been going a little bit longer. So I've got their yield of about 4.2% on a historic basis. Though I just caution with these funds, it's worth kind of allowing them a couple of years to get those dividend records up and running properly. And these are still fairly kind of middle ranking in terms of size in the sector. They're they're a long way behind the big beasts like um, UK Greencoat Wiener. So we're talking about what, sort of a few hundred million in in assets. I say a few hundred million rather glibly, but uh, that's uh, quite small beer still in that uh, sector now. Yeah, no, that's right. So the Downing Fund has got a market cap of about £205 million at the moment. Uh, the VH Global Fund, that's a little larger. I've got that just short of £350 million at the moment. But you're right. I mean, funds such as UK Wind or Trig, the Renewables Infrastructure Group, I mean, you know, they're both over £3 billion. Yeah. But they're sort of bulking up these uh, smaller trusts, the more recent newcomers. Okay, before we move on to talk about results, uh, I just mentioned for subscribers to the Money Makers Circle, we have a profile of a very interesting trust, which is North American Smaller Companies Investment Trust, which is uh, run in, or has been run in a fairly uh, idiosyncratic way by a gentleman called Christopher Mills, uh, but has a long track record, a very strong performance over time, though the shares uh, trade at quite a significant discount for all sorts of reasons. And I've also done a uh, review of the market and another review of the moneymakers portfolios see how they're shaping up fairing during this uh, rather tough opening to the year so in terms of results let's kick off with avi global trust this is in the global sector not surprisingly ticker agt perhaps you can tell us uh, what they've had to say yep so these were interim results for the six months to the end of march in that time, they generated an NAV to the return of 1.3%, and that compared with a decline of 1.4% for the MSCI or Country World X US index. Uh, in share price terms, actually, sadly, they were down in negative territory, just down 1.2%. And that was a function of the fact that the discount widened from about 7% to 9%. But this is quite a specialist investment trust. So the manager, uh, Joan Baumfreud, is supported, ably assisted by Tom Trina, the letter writer we've discussed on a number of occasions. But they really look to take advantage of value opportunities, particularly where there's asset backing. So in this particular period, the top contributors to performance uh, were Pershing Square Holdings, again, another vehicle we've talked quite a lot about, and Oakley Capital Investments, while the biggest detractors were Interactive Corp and Third Point Investors. The weighted average portfolio discount did tighten during the period. They estimated it went move from about 30% to 28%. But the point is that, as per their calculations at least, there's still an awful lot of value in their portfolio on a look-through basis. Their earnings per share uh, was up a little bit, came in at 1.25p, and they declared an interim dividend of 1.2p. But it's quite clear, reading the manager's report, that they've de-geared this particular vehicle, and they're quite happy with that position, given the outlook at the moment. I mean, they are not kind of trying to time the market or make big macro calls, but I think uh, Joan Baumfreund's comments that they were quite happy to have, as he put it, a kind of £150 million of liquidity available for investment. Yes, and you mentioned the letter writing. I mean, one of those letters, I think several of those letters were written to uh, third point investors. Have I got that right? Yeah, the hedge fund ran by Dan Loeb. And it's still been a disappointment. So maybe we'll be getting more letters coming back. I don't know whether they, whether they feel that they've uh, achieved at least part of their objective in that one, even though the, the performance has been disappointing. Um, probably worth mentioning, just reminding us uh, 
how long this trust has been in existence, Simon? Oh, goodness me. Well, um, as you well know, this investment trust was previously called British Empire Securities, I think it was. But I think it started, I'm going to tell you, it started probably, I'm going to say, in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And I think it was called the Transvaal something or another. I think it was a kind of South African play many, many years ago. But I'm sure you have the answer to your fingertips. Of course I do. And uh, yet I wouldn't have thought of asking it otherwise. <laughs> the answer is, you're quite correct, it's 1889. 1st of July, 1889. But of course, no longer feels able to call itself British Empire Securities for reasons that perhaps many will understand. Let's move on then and talk about Edinburgh Worldwide Investment Trust, ticker EWI. This is a Bailey Gifford Global Smaller Companies Trust, and I imagine the results don't look too good. Yeah, look, it's been a tough period. This is the six months to the end of April. In that time, the NAV total return was down about 34%. That compared with a decline of about 7% for the benchmark. In share price terms, it was even worse, actually down 38.5% as the discount widened out from about 3 4% to more like 10%. So what's been going on here? Well, clearly, we have seen a very difficult market for growth investors. It's been hit by the performance of some of its long-term holdings, uh, names such as Ocado, Teladoc, and Zillow. But talking, catching up with Douglas Brody and the co-manager Luke Ward this week, I mean, they are very adamant that when they look at the portfolio and they look at the fundamentals, they believe that um, you know nothing has fundamentally changed with their companies. So they describe this period as being one where they've seen indiscriminate derating. It's not been stock specific, and I think that seems to be an absolutely fair observation. Uh, they make the point that if you actually look at the publicly listed companies in the portfolio, so there are some private companies as well, but if you just look at the publicly listed, uh, 60% of those companies are either earnings or free cash flow positive. In other words, they would consider them to be operationally de-risked, whereas um, of some of the larger companies that perhaps haven't got to that stage, again, they would consider that most of those to be self-funding or have at least sufficient cash to fund their ambition. So that's really addressing this point. It's worth noting that Edinburgh Worldwide Investment Trust, to differentiate itself um, from some of the other global funds in the Bailey Gifford stable, it's very much focused on those mid and small cap companies. They can run those companies uh, so enjoyed the fruits of their success so a big holding or big successful holding uh, historically has been tesla uh, which is obviously now a substantial company but actually they've been using that as a bit of a cash cow so they've been quite happy uh, to take money off the table on that one and recycle it into some other ideas but it's a very diversified portfolio and uh, not too far off 120 or so holdings and there have been some successes as well so they point to the fact that spacex another Elon Musk company, which is a private company, I should note, uh, that's seen the valuation uh, increase on the back of a higher funding round recently. So we talked before about one of the side effects, I suppose you could say, or one of the consequences of this whole general Bailey Gifford strategy of investing more in unlisted companies. And it's, as you said, they've now uh, amount for you know, nearly a fifth of the portfolio, the NAV of the, of the trust. Uh, it actually makes it difficult, even if they wanted to, to implement sort of buybacks and so on, because you're then further concentrating it in the unlisted sector. So tell us, have they been buying back shares? And if so, um, you know, where might this go from here, given what's been going on in the uh, in the listed equity market? Is that going to continue to be a drag on their rating? So the answer is they have been buying back shares. So actually, in that six month period, they bought three and a half million shares back. And actually, since then, they bought over 3 million shares as well. So, and in fact, they've used a bit of gearing to do that. So gearing stood at 7% or so at the end of April. So I think their view on that is that they were quite happy to issue shares when they traded at a premium, uh, as they did in the relatively uh, recent years. Uh, and so at the same time, they're quite happy to buy shares back and ensure that discount doesn't go out uh, to a really extended level. It's probably about 14% or so at the moment. But you make a good point, given that waiting to unquoted. So yes, it stood about 19% at the end of April. So that is something that's worth uh, keeping an eye on. And that, of course, will obviously continue with any trust in that situation when the listed holdings are falling, if they are falling as growth, as growth stocks have been falling. You're going to see that increase, that percentage, because the valuations of the unlisted don't keep pace with those of the listed market uh, immediately. They don't adjust the NAV immediately. At least uh, most trusts don't do. I don't know if uh, this one does that. Do you know whether they do that or not? 
Yeah, so look, I mean, obviously they can't mark to market because these things haven't got a daily market price. I mean, I think they're all subject to quarterly revaluations. I think as a house, Bailey Gifford have been have kind of stepped up their kind of valuation reviews given what's been going on in the markets this year. But you're right, there will be a lag. It's not going to be a kind of real-time repricing. Okay, so we'll move on to talk about a very popular investment trust, Personal Assets Trust, ticker PNL, which is in the, the recently uh, formed flexible investment sector. Uh, and they've produced their annual results for the year to the 30th of April. And uh, they won't be suffering the same fate as uh, Edinburgh Worldwide in terms of share price performance, I'm sure. No, that's right. In fact, quite a decent set of results, all things considered. So the NAV total return came in at 7.1% in that 12-month period. That compared with a rise of 8.7% for the FTSE All Share Index, although it's a very, very different portfolio from that particular index, and 11.1% for RPI. Um, the share price total return came in at uh, 8%, and this is an investment trust that's pursued a zero discount policy for many, many years. It has proven very, very popular, and I think they issued over 450,000 shares during that year, which given their share price um, equates to quite a lot of new money in. And in fact, on that note, they are actually proposing a share split. So the idea that for every one share, you will actually get 100 in return. So just to put some numbers around that, I've currently got them on a share price of about £488. So um, all things being equal, that will go to £4.88. So that's not to say that shareholders won't lose any value as a result of that, or in theory, they certainly shouldn't. Um, it's just that, as I said, it's a one for 100 share split. Um, but in terms of where the portfolio it stands at the moment, or certainly at the end of April, and um, what they deem to be liquidity represented 62% of assets. Now, some of that include UK gilts and cash, that was about 17%. 36% was in US tips, which is the inflationary protected securities. And they had just short of 10% in gold bullion. And in fact, they made the point that equity exposure has been reduced from about 46 to 38%. But in terms of the report and accounts and the, the chairman and the investment manager's reports, it's probably worth starting on that there was actually a very touching tribute to Robin Angus, who was someone who was involved with Personal Assets Trust way back since 1984. Sadly, he passed away recently. He was an executive director on Personal Assets between 2002 and 2020. But I suspect many investors will know him best for his quarterly reports, which quite apart from being brilliantly written, really did articulate the company's investment approach. And I suspect played a significant role in building the following that Personal Assets has achieved over the years. But certainly there were also some very interesting comments from Sebastian Lyon, who's the investment manager now. He's uh, the chap from Troy Asset Management, and he set out, I thought, an excellent view of the world, very well reasoned, and kind of finished off by making the point that, as he put it here, we will endeavour to continue to grow uh, shareholders' funds in real terms, but we are under no illusion as to the scale of the challenge ahead. Indeed. I mean, it's fair to say that it's a similar issue for Capital Gearing and, and Ruffer and others who are in this kind of market for promising to make money every year, effectively, or not to lose money every year, to preserve your wealth. But when inflation is running at uh, you know 10 or 11%, that is a much bigger challenge in a way than it is when it's been running at 1% or 2%. And as we saw in this particular year, which obviously the, the timing of the annual report and the reporting period is relevant here, but the year to the 30th of April... RPI at 11.1%, you know, to perform 7.1%, that's a pretty good return in absolute terms in these conditions, but um, it's lagging inflation. So even with all those uh, tips uh, in there, uh, which obviously have sold off a little bit anyway with uh, rising interest rates, rising real interest rates, it's a big challenge for these ones. And they're making money for shareholders or preserving wealth for shareholders, but only in uh, in absolute terms and uh, not in relative terms. Is that going to affect the market for these trusts, uh, these kind of trusts or not? How do you think the investors will react to that? Well, all three of the funds, so capital gain, rougher and personal assets have continued to prove very, very popular with investors. I mean, I think they're seen, as we talked about last week, actually, in terms of capital gearing, I think they're seen as a, a good way of protecting capital uh, in this day and age. But I think your comments are absolutely valid. So if you look at how they've those three funds are performing in share price terms year to date, I mean, I've got capital gearing trust down marginally about 0.6, Personal assets down probably about 2.8%. So, you know, struggling to just get their heads above the parapet. Ruffer has done a little bit better, up about 9.4%. But, you know, compared with 
the wider investment companies sector, clearly, which many, many names in very much in negative territory, then at least they're kind of protecting capital at the moment. They're not necessarily in real terms. I think with reference to Robin Eikers, I think it's worth mentioning also that uh, before he became you know, a full-time director of Personal Assets Trust and working with Ian Rushbrook, the fund manager who uh, basically helped to turn Personal Assets from a very small trust, rather like uh, a self-managed trust, rather like the ones we mentioned earlier, into this sort of very popular, almost mass market uh, offering. He was an investment trust analyst, and along with his colleague Hamish Buchan, he was the, the regularly number one rated investment trust analyst. Of course, if he'd been competing against you now, Simon, he'd obviously be struggling to maintain that rate. But he did an awful lot for uh, explaining and uh, helping to popularise the idea of investment trusts and, and why they should be of interest to uh, the wider market. So uh, I fully endorse your comments there. I've known Robin Angus for I mean, like 30 years and uh, he was always very entertaining as well as very insightful. He did a brilliant job in exposing the uh, split-level capital trust scandal, for example. He explained that and helped to... Uh, you know, people to put that right. So uh, fully endorse your comments about him. Uh, it helped to have a knowledge of Latin, of course, to keep up with some of his commentary. He was a, very much a traditionalist in that sense. Uh, and it's very sad that he has died. So we'll move on now and we'll talk about some more results and Bailey Gifford again. Bailey Gifford UK Growth, ticker BGUK. They've also had some fine results for this year to uh, the 30th of April. That's right. Yep. These results saw an NAV total return of down 16% in that time, and that compared to a rise of 8.7% for the FTSE All Share Index. In share price terms, uh, they were down 27.9% as they were derated as their discount widened out. So what happened here? Well, we saw a number of detractors in terms of stocks in the portfolio, names such as Genus, Farfetch, and Boohoo. Their strongest contributor uh, was a company called Bunzel. But it's interesting, actually, the managers um, have kind of gone through the portfolio, not dissimilar comments that we saw from Edinburgh Worldwide, and they've re-examined the fundamentals and they believe that they remain strong. So in terms of what they've changed, five new holdings have come in, names such as Naked Wine, Oxford Nanopore Technologies, Wise, and uh, I think their first private company, actually, uh, a company called Wave, which I believe is involved with autonomous driving, uh, developing technologies for that. And shareholders are giving them permission to invest up to 10% of total assets in private companies. They also made three disposals, James Fisher & Son, Ultra Electronics and Jackson Financial. But gearing only came in about 5% or so. So it's very much a case of they're kind of sticking to the names that they've got. Um, this one's managed by Ian McCombie and Milena Mileva. And they took responsibility for this one back in June 2018. So it's no surprise they had the benefit of the growth spurt, if you like, and now they're feeling a little bit of the consequence of this style rotation we've mentioned many times. But they're sticking to their guns. Let's move on and talk about Edition Investment Trust, uh, ticker OIT. It's one we've mentioned uh, several times because it's been involved in a corporate situation as well as just its normal trading. Uh, they've had annual results this time to the 31st of March, ticker OIT. That's right, and a good set of results, actually. The NAV was up 17.7%. That compared to a decline... 2.1% for their benchmark, the NSCI X Investment Companies Plus AIM Index. In share price terms, it was even stronger, actually up 28.7% as their rating moved in. But uh, it's a very stock-specific portfolio. This one, I think they've only got about 16 holdings or so. And their top five positive contributors were Zar, Vectra, Flowtech, Kemring and Spire, and actually two of those saw a bid approaches in the period. And in fact, they made the point that actually since... November 2019, they've actually seen bids on eight of their portfolio companies with uh, average premiums of over 50%. And that's very much what you'd expect given their investment approach. So just to remind people, it's very much a kind of private equity mindset, but to publicly listed companies. They're looking for those companies that can generate growth, but offer some kind of attractive value. So invariably, they're kind of cash generative companies. And therefore, as shown by the number of bids, quite attractive to the trade buyers or private equity houses. Um, they noted that turnover was a little bit higher than normal and that reflected changes to market sentiment. And they kind of traded around that actually. They took advantage when prices got pushed up a little bit towards the end of last year and then came back into some of those same names when we saw the sell-off earlier this year. But at the end of the period, so at the end of March, they were pretty much fully invested. I think they only had about 1% or so in cash and that was quite unusual. So. The way that the managers, so Stuart Wilson and Ed Wilchowski, 
like to run their portfolios have a bit of a cash buffer between about 5 and 10%, so they can take advantage of uh, opportunities as and when they rise. But they're kind of all in at the moment. And in fact, catching up with Stuart recently, it was quite clear that he feels quite capital constrained at present. It's also worth noting that a performance fee has been generated uh, by dint of their strong results. And that performance fee comes in about £2.3 million, of which half will be invested in shares. So they will look to buy some uh, of their own shares. And just remind us what happened with the uh, proposed merger of this with another investment trust, which shared some uh, similar shareholders. Remind us what happened there during this period. So uh, I think the company you're referring to was Strategic Equity Capital, which is part of the Gresham House stable. And it was an approach from Edition uh, and the board of Strategic Equity Capital considered it carefully and then for a number of reasons decided that they didn't think it was the best outcome or the best course for its shareholders. So that uh, merger proposal went away. It was it was always going to be done on a friendly basis. There was nothing uh, aggressive about it. And we know that small cap UK trusts have been obviously trading not very well, given the uh, performance. And this one actually was trading at a premium most of the time. Is it still trading at a premium or is it uh, been caught up a little bit in this uh, down wave? At the moment, I've got it on about a 1% premium, and that is pretty much its average rating over the last 12 months. There have been times when it's popped out to a little bit of a discount. And in fact, its share price has gone a bit better following the results this week. Okay, so let's move overseas now. And we're going to talk about JP Morgan European Growth and Income, ticker JEGI. We haven't talked a lot about Europe, actually, but there's been quite a lot going on, obviously, in Europe, as we know, exacerbated by the war in Ukraine and by questions over how Europe will react to that, uh, as well as the uh, policy changes from the ECB you mentioned earlier. Anyway, JEGI had final results of the year to the 31st of March. That's right. And it's worth noting it started the year with actually two share classes. So it had a growth leg and an income leg. They were merged back in February. So the results I'm going to talk about now are effectively for the growth leg because that's the ongoing share class. Um, so the results were actually uh, quite decent. The NAV total return came in at uh, up 9.8% compared with a rise of 5.5% for the benchmark, the MSCI Europe XUK index. In share price terms, they came in in positive territory up 7.5%. And that NAV outperformance was a reflection of positive stock selection and also asset allocation. But uh, interesting commentary from the investment managers. So Alexander Fitzalan Howard is involved. In fact, they've got three managers, but he's certainly the, the longest serving. But they began the year, the portfolio began the year with a, a more cyclical positioning. But as they went through the year, they increased their exposure to commodity exposed stocks. Uh, and that was on the grounds of inflation. And then perhaps a little bit more recently, they've taken advantage of the derating in defensive sectors, in particularly large cap pharmaceuticals. So it's been quite an active year of portfolio changes. Also, they've increased their exposure to utilities and telecom stocks towards the end of the year uh, or the year of their financial year, I should say, on valuation grounds. It's also worth noting that JP Morgan European Growth and Income has adopted an enhanced dividend policy. So there are a number of these kind of vehicles now in the JP Morgan stable, and that's based on 4% of the preceding year uh, NAV. So that will be now kind of effective going forward. They're also targeting a discount of 10% in normal market conditions, though they're a little bit wider than that at the moment. I've got them on about a 15% discount or so. Yes, we've talked about the fact that this enhanced dividend policy has been pretty successful in attracting investors over the last few years, generally across the JP Morgan uh, stable, if you like. So are they saying that this is not normal market conditions? Are we? Is that the kind of line we're taking with them? The discounts moved out beyond 10%? Or is it just uh, they're waiting for uh, see if things settle down or not? I suspect it's probably the latter. I mean, obviously, as you probably alluded to earlier, I mean, European equities have had a tough time of it this year. And we have seen discounts across the subsector uh, widen out a little. I mean, if you look at the average discount uh, for the European sector at the moment, it's probably about 11% or so. So the JP Morgan Fund's probably a little bit wider than that. Um, but you've got other names such as Alexander Darwell's European Opportunities. That's on about a 14% discount. There are a couple of Henderson funds also on double-digit discounts. So I think that's where the subsector is at the moment. Okay, now we can talk about another JP Morgan Trust, which is JP Morgan Indian, which is ticker JII. They've had interim results in this case to the 31st of March. Yeah, that's right. And in that time, they saw an NAV total return down 1.9%. That compared to a rise of point. 3% for the MSCI India index. 
Uh, in share price terms, not as good actually, down about 5.4%. And that was a reflection of the fact that the discount widened from about 15% to 18%. They have been buying back some shares though, but they put the underperformance in NAV terms down to stock selection, while underweight exposure to materials and utilities, as well as being overweight financials, detracted. And in terms of the biggest stock detractor, it was a company called Adoni Group Companies. But uh, stock selection in telecom and IT services proved positive, and there's various names there, including Infosys Technologies that worked well for them. But uh, it's interesting, they made the comment that given current high valuations, the managers, and that includes Ayaz Ibrahim, has been involved in this one, have maintained a cautious approach to gearing, and the current net cash position uh, stands at about 2%. Yes, uh, probably worth mentioning that um, Infosys, I think is how you describe it, is the uh, company that the Chance of the Exchequer's wife's father started and runs anyway. So they're doing well. And of course, that's not been without its consequences in the UK political sector. The fact that uh, his wife was a non-dom. We don't really talk about that sort of thing here. But anyway, interesting. JP Morgan Indian, I mean, it's, uh, it's been around a long time. And India has done relatively well compared to the emerging markets, I think, certainly compared to China in in the last couple of years anyway, since the Chinese trust started to sell off. And it's quite a big trust, this one. I mean, it's quite widely followed, is it not? It's a decent size. It's the largest dedicated Indian equities fund. It's got a market cap of about £574 million at the moment. Um, Aberdeen New India, not too far behind it, £306 million at the moment. And uh, there's a couple more specialist mid and small cap plays, Ashoka and India Capital Growth, that are a bit smaller. But yeah, the Indian market, it's, it's, it's certainly a very interesting market. And you talk to global emerging market managers, and they've always got something to say about India. Obviously, a very important market as well. I mean, in terms of the performance over the last few years, it's been a little bit mixed, actually, to be honest. I mean, the whole sector. So if you look at the MSCI India index, that's up over the last three years, up about 33%. And certainly, if you look at the pawns of the JP Morgan Fund and the Aberdeen Fund, and they're probably the most comparable, um, they've both underperformed. So the Aberdeen Fund is up 19% and the JP Morgan Fund up 11%. Over the, the more recent times, both funds have done a little bit better. Okay, now we can talk about some specialist uh, results. And we're going to start off with Atrato Onsite Energy, ticker ROOF. Uh, might be a bit of a clue as to what it does, but uh, let's uh, hear about them, Simon. What have they had to say? So these were interim results for the period of the 16th of September last year to the 31st of March. And, you know, very, very early days for this one. So just to be very clear, it actually only came to the market in November last year. It raised £150 million at that stage. So it was oversubscribed, a very popular IPO. And at the end of March this year, it was sitting with net assets at about £146 million or so, of which £1 million was the fair value of its investments. So the rest was basically sitting in cash. So they had one operational asset at that stage, but clearly it's all about getting the the capital to work. And actually since that 31st of March period end, they have deployed some more capital, but very, very early days. They made the point that they're targeting a 5P total dividend for their financial year to 2022. Okay, so early days for that one. And then uh, a quick reference to uh, literacy capital, ticker B-O-O-K. So you've had roof and this is book. Tell us what we've learned about this one. Again, another short period. And basically, um, this vehicle has applied for investment trust status. And as a result of that, they've had this short period of results, basically three months to the end of March. But it seems to be performing strongly, actually. The NAV was up just a little over 15% in that time. Um, the vehicle had net assets of £192 million at the end of March. It's quite a concentrated portfolio, but the point was made that the growth in the NEV reflected earnings growth for some of the portfolio companies. So seven of the, the top 10 investments, so the seven buyout investments uh, were recording revenue growth greater than 80% in that period. And in fact, profit growth or EBITDA, uh, that was up 130% on a weighted average last 12 months basis. Yeah, so it's an interesting vehicle, but it is a rather uh, special with unusual kind of history and structure. Okay, we've got a couple of property trusts to round us off. Let's kick off with LXI REIT. We mentioned them already uh, because of the proposed merger with Secure Income REIT. It's ticker LXI, and they've also put out their annual results. And uh, uh, how have they been doing? 
Yeah, strong set of results, actually. So um, annual results for the year to the 31st of March, NAV total return up 18.2%, and that compares with their medium-term target of 8% per annum. Portfolio was valued at $1.5 billion at the end of March, and it saw like-for-like valuation growth of about 10.5%. So the adjusted earnings per share came in at 7p. That was actually down from 7.5p from the previous year, and that was as a result of the significant increase in its capital base. In other words, it's raised more capital during that period. But they've paid or declared total dividends of 6p uh, in relation to that financial year, and that was up 8% from the previous financial year. So they're targeting a dividend of 6.3p for their 2023 financial year, and that will represent a 5% increase. And then Schroeder Real Estate Investment Trust, ticker SREI, they've also had some annual results for the same period. That's right. And again, a very strong set of results for Schroeder Real Estate Investment Trust. Their NAV total return came in just short of 31%. So at the end of March, their uh, property and joint venture assets were valued at 523 million, and they saw a like-for-like increase of 22% in that financial year. So how have they managed to do that? Well, they saw some strong growth from their multi-let industrial estates, uh, retail, warehousing, and offices in higher growth cities work for them. Uh, Rent collection has stabilized at pre-pandemic levels, and also they paid dividends totaling 2.83% in relation to that year. And that was up from 1.59p in the previous financial year uh, and gave them dividend cover of 113%. So quite a strong story in terms of the revenues and dividends. Both of those now, their dividends are covered by uh, earnings, which is good to see, was the case before the pandemic. Certainly uh, for most investment trusts in the commercial property sector, they saw their cover fall quite uh, sharply during the sell-off after the pandemic broke, but they both seem to be in reasonable shape. So just tell us finally about these two and their respective yields and their discounts. So LXI REIT, probably on about a 3-4% premium at the moment. Obviously, that ongoing merger that we discussed earlier, um, it's got a yield on a historic basis of 4.1%. Though I just caution on that, obviously, the, the merger's got to kind of move its way through, so that might have an impact on the dividend going forward. Schroeder Real Estate, that's on a discount of about 24% or so at the moment. So, And that compares to an average of 22% over the previous 12 months. And its dividend on a historic basis is coming in about 5.2%. Okay, so that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. Uh, thank you, Simon, as always, for your comments. I'll leave you to uh, get ready for the next test match, which I'm sure you'll be doing, and hopefully will produce another triumph for the English cricket team. Probably worth mentioning that um, you and I are going to be meeting up in Edinburgh early next week for the uh, Winter Floods uh, Investment Conference up there. You'll be gauging the uh, attitude of a number of leading investment trust managers. That'll be interesting to see. Uh, I should be uh, listening in on that. And we're looking forward to um, updating everybody next week. So goodbye for now. Thank you. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.